Hello and welcome to the Emergency Medicine Journal podcast for June 2023. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Sarah Edwards. And we've got another selection of some of the fantastic papers that we published in the Emergency Medicine Journal this month for you. We're going to start with early warning scores and respiratory rates. So when we're in the emergency department, we often, well, we always calculate respiratory rates, but are we that accurate and do we do it right? And what are the implications for early warning scores? You've taken a look at a paper, Sarah, that evaluates the importance of respiratory rate measurements. Yeah, so this was um, interestingly done by some of my colleagues in uh, Nottingham Hospital, so by Fogarty et al. And it's a research letter looking at error in the respiratory rate measurement by direct observation impacts on clinical early warning score algorithms. And essentially, it really makes you think about, are you counting your respiratory rate accurately? So respiratory rate measurement, as we know, is hugely important and forms part of the early warning score or the national early warning score or the national early warning score version two. But irrespective of that, it is a, can be a really sensitive indicator of patients getting poorly. So what they did was they took a data set of um, 843,000 respiratory rates from a set of patients over a period of time. And they found that the step from a respiratory rate of 20 to 21 breaths per minute was associated with a large drop in frequency of readings. And then they found that when the respiratory rate of 22 um, was taken, there were higher breaths per minute in that category. And what this looked at was that the expected recorded amounts um, versus the normal distribution of these respiratory rates didn't match. So we had respiratory rates um, sort of appropriate for 20. Um, At 21 breaths per minute, there were not what you would expect. And then at the respiratory rate of 22 breaths per minute, significantly higher than what you would typically expect. And there was this noticeable for the 21 very significantly there were a lot less than there should be and what this meant was there was a a measurement error of around 214 percent which suggests that the respiratory readings for 21 breaths per minute are being probably miscalculated so what does that mean well the national early warning score 2 which is used by an awful lot of emergency departments around the country uses a respiratory rate of 21 or over to cross the higher threshold for the news score, which potentially means that if the respiratory rate of 21 or 22 or even 20 are being miscalculated around these points, that actually it may change the news score and thus change the clinical response that may occur. Interestingly, this is an observed phenomena that has been seen in other literature published, but really gets you thinking about, are you or are our respiratory rates being miscalculated and the potential clinical impact of this, Rick? So it tells us that staff seem to be calculating this over 30 seconds because they're all even numbers and then the times in them by two because you've not got as many odd numbers it means we're, we're generally using 30 second respiratory rates the heartening thing is that it doesn't seem that they were all divisible by four <laughs> so people are doing 30 seconds and not 15 seconds and i have to be honest i sometimes do 15 second respiratory rates 
Uh, and the, the authors have made a good point, haven't they, that if we do it that way as a shortcut, you kind of categorize this continuous variable and you lose the richness of the information. Sometimes you might underscore people on the early warning score. Sometimes you might overscore them on the early warning score. So the key, key messages, number one, I suppose, they're trying to tell us that we should count respiratory rates over a whole minute to get the richness of the information. Um, but number two, this does pave the way for wearable technology. My watch will calculate my respiratory rate. I'm not sure how well. It says that I'm breathing at 21 minutes breaths per minute today, and sometimes it goes down to 7.5, which I hope is not true. <laughs> but as the technology advances, automating this would uh, be excellent for the measurements that we take and the validity and uh, reliability of those measurements, but also save a lot of staff time if we have to spend a full minute calculating every respiratory rate. And ultimately, the other thing as well is, does it really matter? That's what I don't know. So whilst it changes the news score, does a respiratory rate independently, be it 20, 21 or 22, change your morbidity or mortality in isolation? I mean, that would be a huge piece of work. But that's the other thing as well, not only about how accurately we're counting it, but does it matter? It's a really good question. I mean, if my respiratory rate really is 21, I'd be scoring right now and I think I'm okay. So yeah, I think it's it's a phenomenal bit of work and I'm hoping they're going to do some more work looking at this to really tease out the data. Absolutely. So I thought that was really interesting. Great start. The second paper that we've taken a look at is also really interesting because it's kind of unusual. Uh, so it's a paper from a team in Bristol, and they've had a look at cross-cultural adaptation. So this uh, is something that we should do when we're bringing across a decision instrument from another culture, another geographical location, another culture, and we need to use it in our own culture uh, or for different cultures, perhaps in the same location. Now, the, the reason for this is that when decision instruments are designed, They've always got some cultural considerations. The authors have given us a really nice example at the start of this. So they've taken something called the health assessment questionnaire. When it's translated from English into Thai, there's a question about taking a tub bath. Now, you can make a translation of taking a tub bath into Thai. However, bathtubs apparently aren't routinely used in Thailand, the authors tell us. So... It's not something that people in Thailand would be able to naturally relate to. And therefore, if you want to ask that question, really you've got to think of something that might be associated with a similar level of psychomotor activity, but that's culturally appropriate. So in that case, they, they talked about something that's uh, more widely recognized in Thailand, which is, for example, kneeling to, to pray, and, and, and that was more appropriate. So they talk about how the, the, different, the different sort of um, considerations for cons for cultural adaptation. There's semantic equivalence, so things about like your language. Translating, for example, from US English to British English, they give the example of sidewalk and pavement, for example. They talk about idiomatic differences, so phrases that we might use that have a significance in our culture, but when you say that outside of our culture, people might think, what on earth are you talking about? And the example they give of uh, uh, this is uh, crying your eyes out. That's one we use in the UK. Of course, when you when they mentioned that, I suddenly thought, oh yeah, that does sound really bizarre if you've never heard of that expression. So you'd have to sort of uh, translate it on that level. 
then you've got the experiential equivalence. So functional assessments. They gave an example here about the Canadian C-spine rule, uh, where one of the high risk factors is uh, trauma associated with a recreational motorized vehicle collision. And that's an unusual phrase. And you've got to wonder, do they mean the same thing as we mean by that? Do they mean a car accident? Because there are over a half a million registered snowmobiles in Canada. So it might be a very different thing in Canada. And we've got to make sure that we adapt it appropriately. And then there's the conceptual translation as well. So for example, I, the one that I thought of that seems to relate to this is the Ottawa subarachnoid hemorrhage rule, uh, where we ask if the patients arrive by ambulance. And th- th- we, there may be uh conceptual differences what do we mean by emergency ambulance it might be different in different situations get people get ambulances for different reasons so they give us then a worked example of how they've done cross-cultural adaptation translating the language and getting two translators to do it then bringing those two translations together to make one coherent document back translating it back into english with the third translator if that's done and then using an expert committee to make sure that you've got this absolutely right So it was a very sort of straightforward example of PROM-ED, a tool from, I think, from Canada that they translated for English use. But this could also be applied to other things, things that we use that have been developed for use in a sort of um, uh, a white British context, perhaps, but where we need to to, uh, adapt that for use in other cultures that we might encounter in the emergency department. So it's actually quite relevant to our day-to-day practice, patient information sheets, all sorts of shared decision-making resources. Could be this same principle, could be applied to all of those. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, it really was very interesting reading this paper. As as you said, it's something I've not really considered. And yeah, absolutely really great work here to highlight the differences and and I suppose the question that really struck with me is you know can you compare culturally you know kneeling with taking a bath I mean they seem very different tasks to me are are we meaning the same things um but yeah absolutely really interesting and I think it's something that we need to think about a bit more particularly as our society and our patients are hugely diverse what we see are we speaking the same language that they do and are we talking about the same things absolutely and it just gets us thinking about those important factors for our diverse communities and making sure that the tools that we're using to guide their care are actually fit for purpose the next paper that you've taken a look at sarah moves on to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. We've got a couple of papers on out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And this one is about defibrillation, asking the question, you know, is there a number of defibrillation attempts that we reach where it suddenly becomes futile to try and resuscitate the patient any further? Yeah, so a type of paper and something that I've not really considered and must be a huge challenge. So um, the author, first author, Ko et al. from the Republic of Korea, so going very international here, as Rick was saying, was looking at the association between the number of pre-hospital defibrillation attempts and sustained return of spontaneous circulation, so ROSC. So they did a phenomenal retrospective multi-centred study looking at out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. And essentially what they were trying to understand was how many defibrillation attempts should be made before transfer to hospital in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. 
And I don't work in the pre-hospital environment, but it is and it must be phenomenally difficult if you have got somebody in cardiac arrest, you're having to defib, you're having to do chest compressions or using an automated chest compression device. You know, at what point do you go, well, we've got to get from where we are out of a house, out of a building, wherever you are from the middle of a field to hospital? At what point could be good? And is there a point of sort of no return or something like that? So they did a sort of retrospective analysis of a big multi-centred registry database and they included 1,983 patients, so 1,983 patients who had suffered an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Some of the key things really were that the median time for attempt of first defibrillation was around 10 minutes and that had a spread or an interquartile range of between 7 and 15 minutes. The numbers of patients who had a sustained or pre-hospital ROSC and a good neurological outcome were 37% and 28% with that neurological outcome. What they found was that sustained ROSC rates decreased as the number of defibrillation attempts increased from the first to the sixth. So from 16% Uh, on the first shock, all the way down to 1% on defibrillation attempt number six. And the cumulative sort of sustained ROSC rate and good neurological outcome, again, from initial defibrillation to the sixth defibrillation were 16, 25, 30%, 34%, 36%, and 36%. And then 11%, 18%, 22%, all the way up to 27% respectively. And what it essentially boils down to, which is no surprise really, the higher the number of defibrillations was independently associated with lower chance of sustained ROSC. And that had an odds ratio of around 0.81 with a confidence interval, uh, a 95% confidence interval of 0.76 to 0.86. And then there was a lower chance of good neurological outcome as increased amounts of defibrillation attempts occurred. Again, the odds ratio was 0.86 and a confidence interval at 95% of between 0.8 to 0.92. Essentially, what they found, and the bottom line here is, is that there is no significant increase in ROSC after five defibrillations and no absolute increase in ROSC after seven defibrillations. And again, unsurprisingly, neurological outcomes decreased as the number of defibrillations increased. And what this potentially has significant utility in different strategies, but it, it may help crews decide when to move patients, how to continue, and whether, you know, things like Um, ECPR, so extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation, other things may be useful. Rick, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. So I can relate to this because I have experience of patients with sustained VF in particular who have had multiple shocks where the team leader may sometimes feel uncomfortable ending the resuscitation attempt if the patient is still in VF because it's a shockable rhythm and it feels like you should be able to do something about it. And I feel like this provides some really helpful evidence by showing that, you know, after 
on your sixth shark, there's only a one percent chance of sustained rask. So actually, that we're not when even though the patient is still in VF, a shockable rhythm, the yield from persistently trying to shock them out of that is getting smaller and smaller, such that it's really becoming quite futile after that large number of shocks. And so team leaders should, I guess, be informed by this to say that just because the patient is in persistent VF and VT, if the situation is otherwise futile, you should feel reassured that you've already done everything you possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really difficult situation. And this, whilst this is in the pre-hospital setting, I think this reassure, would reassure me a little bit in the hospital setting, um, as you say. And really has changed my views about how far is too much to take it and actually if you think about it by the time you've got to the fifth sixth and seventh attempt of defibrillation you're at over 30 to 40 minutes anyway so we already know that survival at that point is minimal at best isn't it exactly and just waiting until a systole or an agonal rhythm it, it, it doesn't feel right you know if once you know that you've passed the point of futility and you're doing everything you possibly can making that decision seems most appropriate and this I think helps us backs us up with some evidence to show that, that that does seem to be the appropriate decision and that beautifully leads into the reader's choice paper for the month which is your paper Rick so let's hear some more yeah, so we're going from Korea to Japan for this paper. And we've got another really large study from a Japanese registry looking at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And in this one, they've got 309,000 patients who had a witnessed out-of-hospital cardiac arrest of cardiac origin. And they were looking at the association between bystander CPR and the presenting rhythm. So they were looking to see if, if, if you received bystander CPR, were you more likely to be in a shockable rhythm, VF or VT, when the emergency services arrived? And the implication is that if you're more likely to be in VF or VT and a shockable rhythm, the prognosis is likely to be better, which would add more weight to the um, the assertion that we need good bystander CPR is so important for survival. So the authors did some propensity score matching, which means that they picked out a subgroup of patients from that massive cohort who seemed similar in characteristics, whether they got bystander CPR or didn't get bystander CPR. And then they compared those two groups and they found that getting bystander CPR was associated with more frequent VT or VF presentation or on arrival of the emergency services so the odds ratio is 1.66 so you're 1.66 times more likely or the odds are 1.66 times more greater of being in a shockable rhythm if you got bystander cpr than if you didn't there was a lower likelihood of pea and the same likelihood of asystole so very simple message from this one it just adds weight to the fact that bystander cpr seems to be very, very important for patient outcomes. And that's really reassuring and supports lots of literature and evidence out there already. And this is great bit of work to add into that. Absolutely. So moving on, we're going to go to a different topic. And Sarah, you've taken a look at a paper called Improving Communications in PPE, a solution for landline telephone communication. <laughs> So, yes, 
COVID-19 is still uh, a challenge within healthcare. And this paper was done by one of my colleagues, uh, Professor Tim Coates. And I remember, because I was working in the department, um, this solution that he came up to. Um, one of the challenges of COVID-19 and is working in PPE, and particularly the start of the pandemic, um, we were having to use things like uh, respirator masks, um, FFP3s, and communicating over the telephone was a challenge, particularly over landlines or mobiles, where when you've got a physical device in front of your mouth, trying to get words and clarity out are very difficult. So what they did with the respirator type masks, which lots of people had to use different iterations of for various reasons, was they created a novel affordable system using essentially a throat mic and a bone conduction headset uh, to use in conjunction with the standard emergency telephones that we have within the department. And they tested this new system on 15 participants and they found a mean of around 73% of the staff identified words for speech in this new setup versus 43% in standard practice. And standard practice was basically shouting at people and using hand signals and what have you. Um, and they found that just by having this throat mic and this um, headset really added clarity and you were able to communicate in what were very, you know, phenomenally difficult situations, particularly within the resuscitation room. And whilst obviously COVID has moved on since then, and we're perhaps not using, needing to use res respirator masks, there will be other conditions where we may need to use this type of mask. And it's really important that we communicate in an easy fashion. I found this fascinating. I would love one of these devices. So when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, I failed the fit test for the normal FFP3 mask. So I had to have one of those big respirators. And I spent a lot of time in respiratory resource, calling x-ray and CT and all sorts, trying to speak down the phone with one of those masks on and nobody could ever hear me. So I really, really need one of these devices to help me out so that people can actually hear me and patients as well. I mean, I don't know how we do this for patients, but there must be a way of making communication a bit more easy so that they can listen in perhaps, even though it's not by telephone, but you know, then maybe there's some kind of earpiece that they could have that we, <laughs> we could use this device with. It would be so good. Yeah, it was great. And I remember um, Professor Coates um, in this in the department setting this up and a phenomenal amount of work and time and effort went into trying to get a system that was really easy to use, that was affordable and that actually worked. And I'm so pleased and delighted to have the opportunity to discuss this paper and see that it's published because we never know what's around the corner next and we don't know when the next pandemic or respiratory illness is going to influence uh, our practice and we might be going back to these type of masks again. Absolutely. And you know what? Credit to uh, Tim Coates and the team in Leicester who've produced this research. Tim's always been amazingly innovative and it's great to see another fantastic innovative paper from the team in Leicester there. The last paper that we've uh, looked at in detail is also on COVID-19 and 
for anyone who was involved in the pandemic response, you might remember that we had a home oximetry program. So this launched in wave two, November 2020. The idea was that, you know, we were getting lots of patients who turn up to the ED and um, also, you know, come to the attention of services in different ways. They'll phone the GP or they'll go through test and trace. And they're a bit unwell, but they don't necessarily need hospital care. We knew that it was a chance they might deteriorate, but how do we monitor those patients in the context of a lockdown and a pandemic? So the home oximetry program was introduced as a result. So anyone who was involved, as they will remember, we used to send people home with a pulse oximeter to monitor their oxygen saturations, and they'd be managed on a sort of virtual ward basis. The authors here have used a national data set to look at the impact of that home oximetry program. Did that actually save any lives? Now, they've done a retrospective evaluation by linking data sets, which is a really big achievement to link data sets uh, on this level. They've published one previous analysis from this cohort, which uh, was done on a population level. And when they did that analysis, they didn't show any benefit uh, in terms of mortality. However, that may have been caused by the fact that there was quite low enrollment rate for this program. And perhaps that stopped them from finding an effect. So they've done it, they've approached it a different way in this particular study. They've looked at patients who came to the ED and were assessed as well enough to go home. And they've looked at those patients who were enrolled on the home oximetry program and compared them to patients who weren't enrolled. Now, there were significant differences between those two groups. And this is the first interesting finding, actually. The people who were enrolled tended to be older. They were more often male. They were more often white. Now, that surprised me because the other factors were associated with being sicker. And what I've read from COVID suggested that, um, for example, there are ethnic groups that are non-white that have a worse prognosis in in COVID-19. So I was surprised to see more more white people were enrolled in the home oximetry program. The people who were enrolled tended to be more deprived. They tended to have a higher body mass index and they generally had more comorbidities. So that was the first interesting thing that I thought from, from this paper, just looking at the demographics of the people who were enrolled. They then matched a subgroup of 639 patients to a larger sample of almost 15,000 controls, and they looked at the 28-day mortality. And here's the great thing about this paper. They found a significant reduction in mortality for those enrolled compared to those not enrolled. So the odds ratio of 28-day mortality was 0.48. So you're a little bit less than half as likely to die if you were on the home oximetry program. So can we explain that by looking at any of the other findings? Those enrolled did have higher rates of ED attendance and hospital admission. So it starts to sort of hang together here. They've got pulse oximeters at home. We're maybe detecting hypoxia a little earlier, which means they more often attend the ED. Sometimes they were okay and they didn't need to stay in. They were more often admitted to hospital. Sometimes they were okay, but they were clearly uh, more likely to survive and is, there was lower critical care use in the patients who were enrolled as well, which is really interesting. So we were less likely to admit them to critical care, but they were less likely to die as well. So it's not because the oximetry identified patients who we really need to get in and admit them to critical care and save their life that way. It's probably earlier recognition and simple measures, maybe dexamethasone, for example, for the hypoxia, 
seems to have had an, an impact on the mortality. So that's really heartening to see something positive that we did during the COVID pandemic that made a difference. Yeah, and I think, again, it just goes to show when push comes to shove and you really need to develop something quickly, it can happen and it can have a positive effect. And then it makes me ask, well, are there any other respiratory conditions, for example, that we could do this for? Um, maybe pneumonias, that's or you know, there are other things as well. So phenomenal piece of work. And I'm really pleased to see such positive findings and a great paper again. Absolutely. Wearables are the future. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there's a great future in wearables for facilitating virtual wards and all sorts. Now, just before we finish, I want to mention that I got a publication in the EMJ this month, but the, all the credit goes to the team, Armadella Taibi, the PhD student who led it, um, and the Presto study team. Presto was a study that, that I led, but it was a huge effort across four ambulance services and 12 hospitals where we enrolled patients with suspected cardiac chest pain in ambulance services. And this is the first publication out in print. The main publication is on its way, actually, in a different journal. But we looked at the MAX ECG model. This is a prediction model to automate ECG interpretation that we'd derived and validated, published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine last year. It was Niall Fitzpatrick or Niall Morris's work. And we looked to see if it would work in the pre-hospital environment. So if it would, it's looking at how we can sort of automate measurements on the ECG to decide if a patient has NSTEMI, basically. How did it work? Not very well. <laughs> Sensitivity was 2.3% at the cutoff we found in the original study. The specificity was really good at 99.5%, but it only gives you a 40% positive predictive value. So it's not that good at ruling in. It's certainly not that good at ruling out uh, with the original parameters that we derived. We tried to optimize it and it still wasn't that good. The really interesting thing was, though, we compared it to paramedic ECG interpretation, and the paramedics were pretty good. 71% sensitivity, 93% negative predictive value, just from deciding with the ECG, whether the ECG is normal or not normal. So bottom line is, paramedics beat the computer on this one. Even our own computer algorithm, the paramedics were better. Uh, that's really positive to hear, <laughs> especially for our paramedic uh, pre-hospital colleagues. Um, I think that's the end of the podcast now, isn't it? It is. So thanks very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed getting up to speed with the best emergency medicine literature for this month from the EMJ. So thank you, everyone, and goodbye for now. Take care.